All right, Pete Giuliano. It is, let's see, Saturday, the 17th of October, 2015. That makes this solder smoke, and I know the number, 181. 181, yeah. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow I knew this one. But anyway, Pete, uh, good morning. morning. I'd like to start off by admonishing our listeners. They need some admonishment. You know... Um, they 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 they'll 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 write to us about all kinds of weird little problems that we have with our audio. Yes. Or you know any kind of popping or screeching or anything like that. But they have completely failed to make note of the musical innovation that we included in the last Solder Smoke episode. I, I was astonished. I, I thought that we would be getting waves of fan mail. Because of that guitar riff that, that opened the show, and I, and I hope they they don't even seem they don't seem to even have even tried to guess who the artist was. You know, you're a very talented guy, Pete. Well, thank you. I want everybody to know that uh, that Pete was the is the guitar player in the opening riff to our uh, Solder Smoke podcast. We're sticking with the Moj music from W8MOJ, the Moj at the end. That's at the end when you hear that kind of synthesized electronic kind of music that that, that, that Moj sent us. We're sticking with that. But for the beginning now, we're going to just do something a little bit innovative here. We've got Pete on the guitar. And more about music later on, because I think you have some musical news to share. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's a side note on that, Bill. You know, you know what's terrible is... When you have one of your children who's a professional musician and, and is a composer and a quite accomplished uh, individual, and and you know what he says to me? He says everything you play sounds like 1960s surf music. He said, "I don't care what you do." He said, "It always sounds like surf music." He said, "Well, you know, but get out of the get out of the." It could be worse. I mean, it, it could sound like the soundtrack to some 1970s porno movie, yes, but yes, it, yes, no, it doesn't. Surf music is is better. Yeah, so right. there you go. I thought it sounded great, terrific. Speaking of performances, you know, last time we spoke, we were talking about your impending debut on the QSO Today podcast. And then a few days later, voila, there it was, Ecolo. You were out there. You're out there on QSO Today episode, I think, 60, was it? 60, yes. 60. That was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, it was. You have a good good time talking to Eric? Yeah, I did. I think everybody should take a listen. It's up on the QSO Today podcast uh, site. And Pete is there and shared a lot of good stories and and wisdom and and, uh, just, just a lot of good kind of tribal knowledge. We try to keep the tribal knowledge tribal here knowledge. on this show. But there's enough to go around. Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the thing that's interesting is uh, Eric is a little younger than I am, but he went through some of the similar stages, you know, crystal sets and uh, build your own radios and that sort of thing. So it wasn't like you're talking to someone that, you know, this was a dim light bulb. This this was a bright light bulb because he related to what I was saying. Oh, yeah, you know, I did that. I've been there, you know, this sort of thing. So it just sort of, you know, played very well from that standpoint. Not only that, I misspent youth with Wayne Burdick <laughs> yeah, out there on yeah. the West Coast. <laughs> yeah. Holy cow. Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a, you're right. I, that's what I really like about Eric's interviews, that, you know, he, he, he really lets the uh, the guest kind of uh, 
you know, run with it and, and share the guest's experiences. But, but, but because of his own personal experience, Eric is able to really appreciate what's being and, said. And relate, you know, re- relate 100% yeah. to what's going on. I only regret that I didn't tell the story about the time that I built the oscillator <laughs> to wipe out the TV set. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I think the... The statute of limitations. Yeah, yeah right, right. right. We're going to talk about legal, some legal potential legal problems there too. Yeah, right. A little bit later on. Yeah, but this is this all comes under the category, and we talked about this a little bit in the last podcast, and I don't mean to be redundant, but advancing the radio art. Oh, uh, absolutely. You know, we, we talked about it last time, and I mentioned that some folks didn't really like the use of the term, or maybe just didn't really kind of get what it was about. But a number of people wrote in, as I said last time, that uh, who wrote in saying that they, they see the use of this term, art, in patent law, applied specifically to technology. And it goes back, I think, to the earliest days of the, of the patent system. But I, I, in the course of looking it up, I discovered that it was in Part 97, which is the uh, Code of Federal Regulations that really establishes the, the U.S. Amateur Radio Service. And there was a second part of it that I really liked. I put this up on the blog. They list four or five purposes or reasons for having an amateur radio service in the United States. And uh, high on the list and mentioned several times is the advancement of the radio art. But then the last one I thought was, and I, I really was pleased that this was in there. It was, it's a nice thing to have in there. And it's listed, number I think, number five or six as the enhancement of international goodwill. Yes, there you go. I mean, and here we are, the International Brotherhood yeah. of Electronic Wizards, the IBEW. And so that, I think that was, that was really nice, and it has a nice tone to the, to the whole purpose behind the amateur radio service. Well, well you know, on that end of the, that specific point, advancing the radio art, uh, I think that's encouraging the experimentation. And, and a lot of innovations that we see today in, in radio communications have not come from some laboratory. It came out of some guy's garage, you know. That's right. You know? And, and that comes through in a lot yeah. of Eric's interviews because lately he's been talking to people who have been who've taken the hobby and taken it and turned it into a, a business. Yeah. He talked to the guy who was um, the KPC3 guy. Yeah. And Yeah. And then, um, and then Wayne, of course, and, and, and many other people. And Gerald Youngblood. That's it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's, you know, it, it, it is it is indeed uh, experimentation leading to the advancement of the radio art. And let's not forget Art Collins. <laughs> Art Collins. Well, you can go back to Howard Armstrong. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and he was, you know, I think this, this quote, it's, it's often repeated, and Armstrong was quoted as being sort of scornful of mathematics. And I don't think he really was. He was a real engineer. But, but he also pointed out that, you know, advancement isn't made by just sitting around you know, theorizing on a on a pad of paper, noodling is important. But he also said that you know that real advances are made by hauling equipment around the laboratory, hooking things up. I'm yeah. paraphrasing. Yeah. yeah. But he mentioned uh, hauling heavy batteries around the around the lab and, and trying to get things working. So anyway, there we go. Which brings us appropriately, Pete, to this month's <laughs> report from the bench. Yeah, trying to get things working. Yeah. Well, I, I have some exciting news. Uh, I think on our last podcast, I, I talked about a, a word being added to the lexicon, the, the joy of rotation, and, and I'm now happy to report that not only is the mast rotating, but the beam is rotating <laughs> as oh, well. I, I... So we, we have the beam up there, and 
you know, it's almost like point, shoot, contact. Uh, I mean, I, I can see a significant greater amount of contacts being made today with with the beam than was made with my droopy dipole. So, once again, put your money in the antenna <laughs> and forget buying a $12,000 radio. You know, it's the antenna that counts. And the other exciting news about that is I've now had a chance to mate up the KX3 with uh, with 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 the beam. And um, several weeks ago was the California QSO party, and I hooked up the uh, KX3 barefoot QRP to the beam. And I was working all over the United States, and you know I was breaking polyps. <laughs> you know, and I was saying, okay, nobody knows I'm running 10 watts here. Nobody knows that, you know, because I I wouldn't tell the tell the rig it's just that you know people say where you at you know what's my report what have you i need the points so it it, it really really pays to invest in your antenna system and you know the i I, i've said over and over that the kx3 is such a marvelous piece of equipment but it's even more so when you make that up with a a real antenna you know Uh, Running a chunk of wire in the garage, uh, you know, on the floor of your garage may get you a few contacts, but you're going to do a lot better when you have a more significant antenna. But I like the way you did your antenna, too. It's, it's um, you know, you've got a, a, a commercial uh, three-element beam up on top, but that is really a homebrew project. I mean, you designed it. You figured out where to put the rotator. You, you, you worked on the mast. You worked on the, the, uh, the whole guy wire system. The whole thing, and so uh, you know, you got. It was obvious to me that you got a lot of enjoyment out of working on it, building it, putting it up there. So that's very much your antenna, and it's not just uh, a sack of aluminum that that, that came and came by FedEx. Yeah, and just just install it. And and to that end, uh, I'm going to also share that what was on the bench uh, a couple of days ago, and still on the bench today, is I moved the Bell Thorn. Three <laughs> to twenty. Oh, you mean the belt horn? <laughs> the belt horn three. <laughs> bell horn three to three. twenty meters. Where was it before? Forty was on forty. All right, and so I moved on it to 20. twenty. And uh, matter of fact, just with the beam. Yeah, with the beam makes a big difference. And I, I've been making QRP contacts with with just the bell horn three. And uh, there, up on the uh, blog is a, uh, I have a video audio recording of a contact with a station on the Big Island of Hawaii. So, you know, it's the antenna, guys. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sound like a broken record. It's the antenna. Put your time and energies in the antenna. Now, don't wait till February 17th. <laughs> it, but they work better. It, they, they work better, right? <laughs> but... Put your time and effort in the antenna. I, I mean, you know, yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think we, we we see it's important to make this point, especially with with new hams and new home brewers, because I I really do think for some reason people come into the come in with the idea that the important thing is the box of components on the on the bench, and that the antenna is kind of an afterthought. This may be the result of what happens with people with experience with TV antennas, where in some areas you just throw a piece of wire out the window, and you were, in the old days, able to pick up TV signals if you were in the city. Well, it's, it's not that way. And, and we, I think we're seeing this with um, uh, some of the guys who are building new rigs now, both with uh, Dean, AC9JQ, yeah, and with Brian, KB4ZS. They both did amazing work in putting together, uh, you know, Brian put together a receiver, and Dean put together a whole uh, TIA transceiver. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. 
But with both of them, I think that it was kind of, I was kind of not, well, I was kind of worried about them a little bit because they were reporting, well, you know, it's not working very well because I just got a wire that I threw out the window. Or I hooked I'm it hooked up to the, the rain, rain gutter, gutter. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah okay. come on. But, and then, you know, the thing is, the difference between an end-fed wire thrown out the window and a dipole, if you haven't played around with them, it might not seem like, you might not expect a big difference. You'll, be a, you'll see a huge difference sure. if you get a resonant dipole up there. Sure. Holy cow. Sure. So, yeah, antennas. This is, and it is the season now. I mean, you know, it's getting, getting to the time. Uh, the leaves are going to be coming down up here in the north. That's a good time to start throwing wires up into trees. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Here's a question I'm going to throw out for the group. My antennas are amidst a big forest of trees. How much of an improvement in performance should I expect when all those leaves fall down and there's nothing but sticks up there? I've never seen anybody try to think about this or quantify it. But when you think about it, there's a lot of material up there in the summer months around the antenna. A lot of water molecules kind of being moved around by my RF that is not there when those leaves come down. Somebody out there must know the answer to this question. I have a parallel story I'll tell you once you get the answer, but it has to do with testing jet engines. <laughs> there you go. No, no, seriously. We, we built an engine test stand. I worked in the aerospace industry. We built an engine test stand in the middle of a lemon grove. And there was a reason for that. <laughs> the lemon trees <laughs> and sound attenuation. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real reason. I, I, I can see us going off into on a fascinating tangent Yeah, here, yeah. So I don't, I don't want to take any more time, but when you get the answer, well, I'll tell you the story about all right, we'll, the engine. We'll get the answer, and then we'll, we'll bring in the lemon trees and the jet engine. Yeah, all right. yeah. It's like It sounds like a bad joke. You know, no, three guys walk into a bar with a lemon tree and a jet engine. Yeah, true. Uh, all right. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, you've got to also tell us about Simple Seaver. Yes. I have been, as I had indicated, uh, once I completed the antenna project, I was going to turn the attention uh, to the simple seeker. And uh, what I have done is to start from the back end. <laughs> Always start the project from the back end. And I spent a little time on the audio amplifier. And I tried to document at least three or four different uh, configurations of uh, audio amplifiers that could be used with the project, including a, a discrete uh, component one, you know, with the uh, actually, I substituted uh, uh, a heavy duty or transistor in a two and thirty-nine four thirty-nine oh six, and we used that in the LBS. And there's a LM three eighty six and LM three eighty. And one of the comments I got back as well, you know, uh, I want to see it tested. So there's a short video about even testing the amplifier and what you could reasonably expect. And and what was really interesting in that video was Grounding, grounding, because I demonstrated just uh, hooking the scope up to the um, <clears throat> to the audio amplifier. On the, uh, I looked at the input on one channel and the output in the other. On the output side, you could see all this grass. <laughs> I said, you know what that is? That's grounding. And I put my finger on the chassis, and all of a sudden the grass, <laughs> you know, gets about half the size. And I said, this is why people have problems with high gain audio amplifiers. You know, just wires spread out all over the place, not paying attention to grounding, too too long of leads. So, I mean, that was a really good 
demonstration from that standpoint of what you can expect. And uh, one chap says, well, Jesus, I just hooked the thing up, and without anything connected, I got noise. Well, I bet you had leads three feet long, you know, and it was an antenna. So um, very, I thought it was very useful to look at that, and then we ran the signal through there. And as a matter of fact, the signal was connected. power source for this generator I bought is is a computer. And, and then you see all the computer noise <laughs> running through the generator, getting into that. So I said, "These are this is a really good demonstration of how you have to have good grounding, single point ground, no ground loops, and you got to pay attention to lead lengths and, and lead dress. So I mean, you don't want three feet of wire between your audio amplifier and the receiver. So um, uh, we pretty much complete with that. And then the next phase we're going to take up is uh, the product detector. And uh, <laughs> something really interesting, I actually simulated a dual-gate MOSFET in using SPICE. But, but the available, you'll love this bill, but the available stock uh, devices you could put in there, a lot of them are surface mount, and, and not too many are leaded. But I did build a dual-gate MOSFET out of two IRF 510s. <laughs> <laughs> you could have to be in the catalog. And it, you could do some, you could do some you could do some very high level modulation yeah, there. But it but <laughs> the spice is really powerful because you can see changing the components and, and what the shape of the output will be. So uh I'm gonna post that on the blog when I put when I I've got the chapter and work on the product detector. I'll put the IR five ten up there. That's you the, know the, the the spice is an amazing tool. Oh, it's yeah. really powerful. But and the other thing is that if you can't find the components that you want, there's places where you could ask, and people have developed a model for the component. Even for components like the NE602, you can get the SPICE model and then just, just sort of drop it in there. Yeah, yeah, that would be good. Very, very useful, yeah. But I you know, I a five-tenths for, right. for a product detector. <laughs> why, why not? Why not? Why not do it? But anyway, that uh, that's that's what I'm working on, and uh, so uh, I'll continue the the effort on the the blog. And there seems to be a lot of interest. And, and the other the other thing I still haven't figured out is, of course, uh, most of the people looking at the blog are from the U.S., but the number two country is France. <laughs> it's because. It's because you were wearing that beret. Yeah, yeah that's, that's it. it. There, there was this connection. <laughs> there was this connection. Or, they could, they, they or, or the problem is these guys are, are wearing the berets, and it's not a chick magnet, so they gotta they got to pick up ham radio as a substitute. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's a cultural thing. I mean, there's, there's an affinity there. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy wears thing. a beret, he's got to be okay, right? <laughs> Now speaking of cultural things, you know, you I think you have a device that you're going to fire up here and let us listen to. Do you have that thing there? The thing that I had on initially? You know, just, just turn it on for a second. Okay. I'm hearing it. There's a vaguely musical sound playing in the background there. All right. Now this I got to tell a story here. I, I came across a video on. The Maker blog. I love the Maker blog. It's a little bit artsy. It's yeah. a little bit wacky. It's a little bit, you know, it get, they 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 start they start sliding into needlepoint, you know, <laughs> yeah. and, and and finger painting and uh, origami, and get away from electronics. But that's okay, you know. It's it's all right. But the other day, a, a, a video appeared, and there was this uh, young woman there uh, came on, and she had that kind of 
artsy kind. I guess you could describe free, 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 us as kind of an artsy. Yeah, free spirit, artsy type. Very free spirit, artsy, and kind of she was kind of bouncing around as she was describing her foray into electronics. Yes. And I just, I just said it's just not working for me. I mean, it was a little bit too artsy. But you, <laughs> I think, revealing your kind of avant-garde kind of bo- there's a bohemian side to, to Pete Giuliano that many of you might not appreciate. But and then it's it's tied in with the music, you know. Growing up in the '60s, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. California, yeah, you know, music, yeah. Uh, okay, but here. so that you, it, well, I said, I looked at this video and said, no, uh, uh-uh, no, not for me. Pete said, I like it. Yeah. And now, what are you building? You this has launched a new project for you, right? A drum machine, an Arduino based drum machine. Got to get the Arduino in. Yeah, got to get the Arduino in. Well, I think what was fascinating was this was an electromechanical drum machine. In other words, yeah. they had a, a rotating wheel that was uh, reading some points that was setting the tempo. She had vacuum, vacuum tubes, tubes in there, too. yeah. And she blow herself up. Yeah, they they well, she says, oh, "Here's the power supply," and put her hand on it, and I said, "Whoa, whoa, <laughs> yeah," you know. But uh, interesting because they were using now, now the thing. I think is really significant. You you might have a tough time actually reproducing the sounds of that drum machine with solid state devices. There's something about vacuum tubes and their ability to generate analog sounds uh, that is pure. Our friend Grayson over there in Turkey is smiling. Yeah, right now. <laughs> yeah, Grayson. Did you hear it. that, Grayson? <laughs> but it's just something about the vacuum tubes that they thermotrons. Thermotrons. Yeah, and uh, so. They they generate all these different sounds, and then the the wheel sets the tempo, and um, so it was an, it was an electromechanical device. And she said this was before solid state, of course, but um, really fast. She also at one point pulled out a little IC. Yeah, yeah. She had this thing in her hand, and she starts talking about how she points back at the at the all the the, the tube electronics and says something like, and they've taken all this stuff and put it into this little itsy bitsy thing. And I'm thinking, well, here I'm sympathizing because I like I'm I'm kind of with her. I'm with uh, all the all the electronics. We'll get into that a little bit later, but we should put a link up to this. Thing yeah, the, yeah. People are going to wonder will. about it. Say, yeah, what, what are they talking about? But but it was really right, well, interesting. It's interesting, and it's 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 important to take you know to, to to think outside the box. Yeah. She's way outside the box. <laughs> yeah. But we'll we'll put that up there. All right, so listen, I guess I've got to talk about what's been brewing on my bench. Not a whole lot, but what, one of the, what you said about lead length, it reminded me of something that I did do. Last podcast, I talked about my uh, repair of the Digitia transceiver. I had to repair it after I broke it. Most repairs do, by the way, take place after the builder operator destroys the device by his or herself. <laughs> Pete is raising his hand at this point. Uh, anyway, it's not fortuitous events or anything like that. I I managed to break the relay, the TR relay on the on this on the rig, so I had to go in there and replace it. But I did something else, and it's related to what you said about lead length. One thing I noticed about the Digitia, first of all, it sounds great, but it was picking up a lot of AC hum. Unlike the other bit bit X's that I've built, this one for some reason was picking up AC hum, and it was obviously AC hum from the little power supply that supplies the 13 volts to run the thing. And it was happening both on transmit and on receive, because when I first started running it, guys would say, the rig sounds great, but I'm hearing a little bit of AC hum. 
So what I did is I reached over and I just pushed the power supply about a foot back on the bench, away from the rig, and that took care of the problem both on receive and transmit. But it was kind of bothering me because why is it that this one is getting AC hum and the others didn't? Well, you know, I did something that you just mentioned, and it's an important part of troubleshooting. It's an important troubleshooting technique, and it's kind of hard to define. But if you're working, and I stress here, if you're working on, you know, solid-state gear where there's only 12 volts floating around in there, and you, could, you could turn the thing on, and you could sort of move your hand around and grab wires and parts and everything else. Sometimes you're trying to see if something's hot. Sometimes you're trying to see if the sound of the, the receiver changes when you grab a certain wire or push something certain direction. But what I had in the Digitia was I had the SI5351 board kind of sitting up top the Arduino. And then I had these two uh, little bits of RG174 coax coming down. They weren't little bits. They were, I guess, about maybe 10 or 11 inches in length, kind of curving around and then going into the two different SBL1 mixers, one for the BFO uh, product detector, the other one going into the VFO mixer. Okay, fine. It worked great, but here's where I found out that that's where the noise was the hum was being picked up because if I, as I was listening to it, I could hear the hum in my headphones. And I'd reach into the rig, and if I took those two little pieces of RG174 and kind of pushed them down a little bit closer to the copper substrate, closer to the copper um, board that is ground, I noticed a big significant decrease in the amount of AC hum. So it's pretty obvious to me that in spite of the fact that these pieces of RG174 <coughs> are grounded and shielded, Somehow, they're they're still picking up the AC hum. So, I said, "All right, I got to fix this." And what I did is I went, I took some of that uh, Belden uh, kind of it almost it's it's kind of a it's a it's a replacement for the RG174. I forget the number is, but it's Belden uh, coax. It's about the size of RG174, but it's got the shield exposed on the outside, and it's it's much more rigid and it's got a Teflon dielectric. And I like this stuff very much because it keeps us away from what's referred to as Murphy's whiskers. The RG174, every time you work on the braid, you'll get little bits of wire that'll break off and fall into the worst possible spot in your circuit to short stuff out, and then you, you get into a troubleshooting nightmare. But anyway, I, I replaced most of this kind of floating-in-the-air RG174 that I had in there with two as short as possible lengths of this Belden cable. And I made sure that the braid of the belding cable was soldered down onto the copper substrate um, at you know every every two or three inches, so it was really well grounded. And I hooked it up, and I had like a little pigtail going from the SMA connectors on the SI5351, but only about an inch or two down to where the belding cable was. So I basically made two little kind of RF pipes that carried the BFO and the VFO energy to the SBL1 mixers, and then. As soon as I did that, the um, the uh, um, the problem with the hum just disappeared. So there's something to be said for making sure that those leads are kind of sure. kind of properly placed right. and short as possible and grounded. And it, it's 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 a kind of a when you do do it for a while, it's hard to describe how you do this kind of troubleshooting. But there's a benefit to going in there and just sort of touching things and moving things around. You get it. You sometimes you'll get a sense of where the problem is just by doing that. Tribal knowledge. The other thing I've been working on is my beloved 
Drake to be. I talked about this last time that uh, my friend Alan Walkie, W2AEW, has been putting out some, some really nice videos on his uh, repair and realignment of his uh, newly acquired Drake 2B. I looked at the third one that, that Alan did, and as I was watching it, uh, something occurred to me that, you know, the, the Drake 2B has this uh, tuning dial and it has this skirt on the back of the tuning dial, and the skirt has little hash marks on it. The hash marks are supposed to signify 1KC movements. So, in other words, if you take that Drake 2B dial and you move it, move the skirt from one mark to the other, you'll have moved it by 1KC. This is, I think, in part to deal with the, the dial parallax problem that you get on the 2B. <laughs> if you're not sitting right in front of the Drake 2B, if you move off to one side, it's hard. The, the, that little dial in there, there's a parallax thing going on. But you could... The, the Drake engineers designed it so that just using the knob, just the VFO knob, you could say, oh, if somebody said to you, you know, move up three KCs, you would just go three of the little hash marks. Now, here's the thing. There, on the original skirt of the Drake 2B, there are 40 of these little hash marks, which indicates that one rotation of the dial 40 will give you 40 KCs. And this is one of the complaints, and I... I'm hesitant to repeat it because it's, it's painful for me to speak ill of the Drake 2B and, or any aspect of it, was that it tuned kind of fast. And 40 KCs for one rotation of the tuning knob is a bit fast. So I, I vaguely remembered, vaguely remembered, that, that when I acquired my Drake 2B back in 1973, my Elmer, WB2NEC, Hilmar, told me that he had, he had modified it and he'd put a reduction drive in there. And that's why my Drake 2B tuning knob doesn't have the skirt with the hash marks because Hilmar took it away. But, and as I was talking to, as I was watching Alan's video and looking at the skirts and looking at how he tuned his, I went over and I just, I said, okay, let me see how far mine goes with one rotation of the dial. And I, I watched the main tuning dial, I rotated it at one, and it only moved about, oh, I'd say seven to ten KCs. So Slower a significant tuning. reduction yeah. in tuning. And then I started thinking, all right, what kind of, what, what, what happened here? What kind of mod was this? So <laughs> this is where it gets kind of, kind of funny and kind of scary. Um, I figured, well, okay, there'll be some information out there. Maybe there was a standard kind of mod that people did with the Drake 2B. And I'm sure somebody, that's maybe what Hilmar did with mine. And so I go to the, to Google and I type in Drake 2B tuning rate, tuning dial, reduction drive, mod. Boop. Hit it to Google. And the very first message that pops up, the very first article that pops up was written by guess who? By me. <laughs> there you go. It, in 2000, in 2000, I was looking at this issue. The reason I was looking at it, in, in one of the moves that we had conducted, the, uh, the tuning dial of my beloved Drake 2B had gotten mashed to one side. And, and it was, as the British would put it, as Maria used to say when she was a little girl, it was a bit wonky. It got bent. And so when you turned it, it was all kind of clunky and ugly. It was not at all smooth. So I, back there in 2000, I opened up the 2B and I saw that Hilmar, back in 1973, had put um, a 6-to-1 Orrin Elliott reduction drive in there. And... Mine was just all smashed up. So I, I, in 2000, my messages indicate that I mailed away for one. I, I got it back. I popped it in there. 
and I completely forgot about this repair. Now, I got a good excuse. There was a lot of stuff going on in my yeah, life. Yeah, I can imagine. In, in the year 2000, yeah. Maria was being born, and we were getting ready to move to the Azores. Yeah, there so you go. I guess, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of space in my hard drive. Full. Your plate was full. Yeah, that's right. But I managed to, I actually replaced the reduction drive, and that's in there. But this is, I guess, one of the benefits of keeping notes and notebooks. But it's also one of the benefits of discussing this stuff on the Internet, because if decades from now you are having a problem with one of your rigs, you could just go to the Internet and you'll probably be referred back to your own earlier messages. So anyway, thanks to Alan for that. Um, <coughs> it was it was a lot of fun working on, on the Drake 2B. And, oh, yeah, I, in the course of doing this, I want to mention something else. I had complained about how uh, the, the technique that Drake used for tuning in SSB signals, uh, I thought left a lot to be desired. But when I reread the Drake manual, they point out in the manual for the 2B that uh, an alternate method of tuning SSB signals might be to leave the BFO and the product detector on and just tune for zero beat and treat it as an SSB signal. And I, I find that that works a lot better because you're getting, you've got 3.6 KCs of bandwidth and you're not trying to share them between two sidebands. You're just listening to the one sideband. Right. So I think that was good advice from uh, the engineers out there in Miamisburg, Ohio. Three cheers for Drake. Yep. All right. What else are they going to say? Let's see. Um, By the way, oh. before you pass on the Orinalia, that that's one of the world's best-kept secrets. This is an Ohio company. Check yeah. up. Or in Elliott products and uh, those yeah. those uh, drives that uh, Bill was talking about. Um, if you buy what used to be the Jackson Brothers from England, those things are fifteen twenty bucks a piece if you can get your hands on them. And Or in Elliott's are about half that price. So a really good deal, and they make variable capacitors. I, you you already ever hear about them? You know, advertised anywhere other than the fact that people say, "Oh yeah, I got an Or in Elliott," and check them out on the internet. Really good company. All right, excellent. Yeah, they are, and they're beautiful pieces of work. You get that that little mechanical device. It's three dimensional. It's it's got you know, and that that brings us to kind of three dimensionality here. Yes, uh, I'm I have and I'm I'm working on it very slowly, very carefully. I have over on my other operating table a um, my the DX100 that John Zaruba uh, K2ZA gave me. It was his dad's DX100. I have it here. Winter is approaching. It's time to fire up the DX100, not only for uh, radio purposes, but for shack heating purposes yes. also. <laughs> It'll do but that. I, I took off the front panel, and I pulled it out, and I was just looking at that thing, and I sat back and I said, this is the kind of radio equipment that I grew up with. This is three-dimensional radio. It's, you know, it's, it's tubes. It's, it's, it's just very sub- heavy-duty sub- iron. Heavy iron. iron. Copper, copper chassis, big mechanical things to move big, you know, bread slicer capacitors. Great stuff. And, you know, then you look at, the other thing is you look at the schematic diagram for DX100. It's so simple. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's really easy to follow. You could understand what every capacitor, what every coil, what every inductor is doing in there. God, it's just great. I'm gonna I'm gonna get this thing fired up. I've I've got the crystals in there. I've kind of lubricated the the VFO mechanisms. Uh, I've sprayed a lot of deoxid at the appropriate spots, and I'm gonna work on getting this thing fired up on on 40 meter AM, maybe 75 meter AM 
this winter. Maybe if I get ambitious, maybe even 160p. Ooh. Been on 160. What are, what are you going to do for an antenna for 160? Something short. You know, you if you look at Sprat, Sprat's a really good source on kind of uh, uh, 160 meter antennas for very small um, garden or backyard plots. And there's a lot of ideas. I mean, there's a it, they won't it won't be optimal. But for local QSOs, you don't need a whole lot of effective radiated power on 160. And a lot of it, a lot of the 160 activity here and, and in the UK is just basically locals getting on during the day to chat locally. So I might do something like that. Like, maybe like an in, inverted L, maybe? Inverted L with a big loading coil yeah. to get it to resonate and just get a little of it actually radiating. So we'll see. Uh, stay tuned. But um, anyway, good good stuff. Speaking of... Which this I think the next thing we've got to talk about is our historic wow <laughs> that was fantastic wow that was great yeah. we we put this up on the blog and, and uh, I've been lamenting here on the podcast for for a long time the the fact that I, I I've never had a um, a contact with another homebrew station and um, it just never happened it happened on CW a couple times but never with a sideband rig. So I, Pete and I have been talking about this, and then a few weeks ago, just shortly after we did the last podcast, um, Pete and I were talking on Skype, and he mentioned, I remember you said, wow, I'm on 20 with the new antenna, and I'm on there with the, with the, with the, with the Zia, with my Zia rig, and I'm working stations all over. And I said, well, how are band conditions? He said, he said great, I've been working into the East Coast all day. And I sat back in my chair, and I said, hey, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. I'm on the East Coast. All right, it's QSO time. So we uh, we picked a frequency, and I fired up my uh, my Bidex twenty, and you going ran it into the CCI amplifier that we've talked about a lot. I aimed the Moxon antenna out there to 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 Los Angeles area, and as I was tuning the frequency, it took me a few seconds to get everything going. But as we as I was tuning, I heard. Um, some sideband chatter on the frequency that we had selected, and I figured, oh man, I picked the wrong frequency. I'm going to go have to back back, back to Pete. We're going to have to find another spot on 20. But then I heard my call. I was a little bit off frequency, and I turned it in, and I hear N2CQR. This is N6QW. Over. Bingo. That was great. Yeah. I, I recorded it, and, and you, you, I think you when you when you listen to the recording, we've got it up on the blog. You could just sort of. You could sense the excitement. I, I was that was I was really, as the Brits would say, I was chuffed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was good. That was that was a good contact. Yeah, and, and and it's amazing. You you were saying this is like three years or so. You've you've been trying with the Bedexes, and and this was the first one. I mean, uh, I, I just you know you would think it'd run into other other stations, but the first one. No, that was the first one. There we go. Now we had another one. And I guess we could mention that now. Uh, just just last week, uh, I got on and I uh, I heard a station calling uh, CQ on 17, and he had a really nice signal. It was Golf Whiskey Three, Victor Zulu Sierra Jeff in Cardiff, in Wales, and I called him. And as I usually do, I when he when it came time to mention the rig, I said, "Well, rig here's homebrew," and I described it a little bit. And I was I was really blown away because he I, I would turn it back over to him and he said oh well Bill uh, the rig here is homebrew also <laughs> twice believe in me, two weeks believe me you will not hear those words spoken very often on the handbands no. no I mean this is like the second time in 
in three years of running homebrew sideband gear. More common on CW, um, but but very rare on on single sideband. And I hate to say it, but rare, especially rare, in the United States. I'm, I think it's it's more common in Europe, and I think it's it's probably more common in some developing countries. Certainly more common in Cuba, where where for years people have been building homebrew rigs, and I think much more common down under in Australia. I know when when you look at Peter Parker's web pages, you see uh, he's commenting on he'll tail, he'll fire up one of his Beach 40 rigs and go down to the pier in Melbourne, and when he's talking, there'll be three or four guys on frequency, all of whom are running homebrew gear. I'm jealous, but uh, so it's pretty rare here. But that for this reason, we've decided to uh, to document and catalog these contacts. We're calling them HB to HB, you know. Letter HB, number 2HB, and uh, I've created a category for it on the blog. So every, if you have one, notable, if you experience one, especially if it's on sideband, uh, send notice of it to me, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll put it, we'll include it in the catalog, and this hopefully will encourage more of this activity. You had, you had some good ideas about frequencies that might be good. I think you said 14285? Right. Well, there's a, uh, a recognized list of uh, sideband, sideband QRP frequencies, and uh, 14285 is uh, is the is is the frequency on 20 meters, and I'm sure there's one on I, I don't know what they are, but there's the HF pack group on on, yeah. on 17. They're 165 or 166, 18165. Is is that it? Yeah. And it's it's not an even frequency. It's like 165.5 or something like that. So there there are some recognized frequencies, and the one. The one international one for 40 meters is not in our handband, not in our phone band. Mm-hmm. It's in the, it's because in Europe the phone band extends down to what is our CW band here here in the yeah. U.S. So that that might not work too well. But 20 meters is 285. All right, so we're going to try to do this, and we're uh, we're, we're interested in uh, in establishing more HB to HB contacts. I've got to get back to Allison because Allison and I are in good range for 40 meters. Oh yeah, yeah. And she sent me a couple of emails saying that we just missed each other on 40. But there's another potential yeah. HB to HB contact. So Allison, I'm going to be getting in touch with you via email. We'll set something up and we'll we'll have another one for the uh, for the for the blog. Um, oh, Pete, this is this is a, this is kind of cool. Uh, we, you were talking about the usefulness of the beam, and I think I told you about my my power line noise problem here. I'd like to start by saying that I engaged in no criminal activity <laughs> in the course of this episode. I want to just get that out. You know, I've been in touch with our attorneys from Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe, and they, they advised me to, to make that statement before I begin sharing the story. But anyway, what happened, I, I, even though I'm in, in the, um, in the uh, heart of northern Virginia here, uh, somewhere, what is, what do you say, somewhere in the wilds of northern Virginia, this is a, and this is a very high tech, very developed area. You'd expect a lot of noise, but I don't have a real noise problem here. I never have. It's really quiet, which is great. But noise reared its ugly head a couple of weeks ago, shortly after we did our, our last podcast, and it was really annoying. I mean, and it was obvious. It, it, I mean, it was really obvious to me that it was something arcing somewhere, and there was a lot of arcing, and it was. It, it, it sounded like the classic power line arcing sound. Would, you'd be listening to the band, and all of a sudden, it'd be like, and then stop for a few seconds, 
arcing transformer. Yeah. Right? A, a transformer's arcing or a wire's gone and it's arcing or something's across the wires. It seemed to vary with the wind. When it was windy, sometimes it would go away, but then when it got more windy, it would be there. Something was arcing. So I, I used the, the moxin. I, I noticed with the moxin that if I aimed it in one particular direction towards the northwest, the, the noise would peak, and it would there'd be a noticeable null in every other direction. So I knew it was in, sort of in that direction. I even went out with a little... Um, shortwave receiver tuned to 18 mags and walked around the neighborhood. But I really, I just, all I could get a sense was that it was off in one direction. But I, I didn't, I, I didn't have enough time to really investigate. Plus the neighbors think you're kind of yeah, nuts yeah, when you know, walking around like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, there he goes again. But anyway, uh, okay, so I wasn't on the air a lot. I got, busy with other things with work and everything so but it was there and it was always kind of annoying then about a week later um billy and maria take off to school and on the way to school maria sends us a text and she says wow there's a big fire on the road on the way to school and she said you guys you guys will pass it later check it out so the whole day passes and i don't see it i don't go past there until like the end of the day and Elisa and I are coming back towards the house, and I see the area that, that the, my daughter had described, and there's still smoke. The smoke is rising from a power line, from the top of the power line. Uh, there you go. So I said to the kids, I said, what was on fire? They said, it looked like the telephone pole was on fire. <laughs> but I mean, a lot. Yeah. I mean, so much so that it was still smoldering, right? And... Then I went, and I, 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 at first I didn't put two and two together. But I come home, and I, I, I come in, and I just happen to turn on the rig, and I turn on the rig, no noise. Ooh. And then it starts to dawn on me. And then I said, wait a second, let me take a look at Google Maps and, and see what the heading is for the, the place where the fire was. And it would beat exactly the beam heading. Yeah, the, there you the go. 17-meter on so, you know, I, I figured this was the radio gods. Radio gods? Yeah. The radio gods have spoken. They, they did not like that, that arcing bothering me, and they sent some sort of thunderbolt down to take care of that thing. But <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm glad it's gone. But, uh, and I, I, I emphasize, I did not set fire to that telephone <laughs> pole. <laughs> I know it seems very suspicious, but anyway. I, just a couple other things to mention here. Um, uh, I've been on 40 meter AM with the HT37. That's been fun. 40 meter AM, good stuff. HT37. I heard some guy calling CQ on uh, on the Tia rig, and I decided to give him a call. And uh, but I couldn't call him on sideband. That'd be bad for him, you know. When somebody calls CQ on AM, you can't come back on a sideband rig. They get mad about that. They don't like it. How, how do you find the the difference in frequency stability between the HT37 and your Digitia? They're both on 40. Um, you just have to let the HT37 warm up a while. And for me, it'll be fine. Now, some of the um, the you know more persnickety, kind of demanding, high-tech folks on 40 will come back and tell you that it's drifting a bit, you know. But for me, it's generally okay. And I, I just I think the key there is you need to let it warm up a bit. But I, I don't notice a real big problem with it. And I know that pains you to hear 
back. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, here, here's the reason I asked. They have a vintage sideband net here uh, on the West Coast. Maybe they have one on the East Coast. Yeah, I think it's, yeah. I think it's on Tuesday nights. And these guys will fire up uh, – They'll fire up the Collins and the, the Drakes and a few Nationals in there. And, and boy, those Nationals all over the... But it's interesting to see that just, you know, er, everything's moving around. You know, you, you guy be over like here. The old yeah, days, like the yeah. old days, you know, just say, okay, well, we just live with that. You know, it was, it was not I a know. big thing. We just moved the dial a little bit and say, okay. I know. Okay. Well, I had one guy told you, barked at me and said, it's drifting. It's dri it's moved more than 30 hertz. Yeah, there you go. That's unacceptable. Yeah. And I said, Come on, it's an HT37. It was built in 1959. Yeah. It cost 450 bucks in 1959. A lot of money. 395, yeah. Wow, a lot of money. But anyway, um, I, uh, no, I, I, I find that the HT37 has always been surprisingly stable, and I know that other people have not had that experience with it. I don't know why mine was, I got, I guess I just got a good one. I'm going to stick with it. I don't know how much longer it's going to last. I, when something goes wrong on it, I'm going to be reluctant to work on this thing because it's, you know, it's all the point-to-point -point wiring in there, and it's... I mean, I love it and everything, but it it just sits over there. I don't use it that much, but I did use it in that QSO. On the opposite end of the technology spectrum, Pete, just to show that we're not complete Luddites over here in... With, with 1D. 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 A, a real Luddite uses only 1D. 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 <laughs> None of these fancy double-D modern stuff. But uh, the Chinese radio amateurs have launched a whole bunch of CubeSats up into space. They're called, they're, they go by the call sign XW2. They've got a downlink on two meters. And when I heard about this, I said, I want to listen. So at first I was listening with the Drake 2B with a Hamtronics down converter so I could get two meters down to 10, listen to them for a while. And then I, I fired up the dongle, the, um, you know, the, uh, the RTV, the digital dongle, the SDR receiver in a memory stick. You know that thing that we've been talking about. And I listened to it with that. I like the 2B and the down converter better. I don't know. Just a, just a matter of preference. But uh, anyway, I, I played around with that. And I also tried this thing about using the dongle as a kind of a spectrum analyzer. You know, because we we're always talking about how on uh, you get on the bands with your homebrew rig and you're talking to all these guys who are using, you know, flex radios and other SDR radios. They've all got kind of spectral displays yeah. and waterfalls. And they immediately start putting your rig under <clears throat> microscope. microscope. Yeah. Plus, you've got other people who are just sitting there kind of watching the whole band all at once, looking for anything that looks a little bit odd. But anyway, I, I, this was something we talked about a long time ago. I think Tony Fishpool had suggested it. I just had the, the dongle sitting here with no antenna hooked up at all. Or maybe I just put a little, a little tiny bit of wire in there into the input. And so I would turn on the... Uh, one of the Bidex rigs, and have the dongle tuned so I could just pick up enough little RF, and I could take a look at what the spectrum looked like compared to all of the, you know, ten or $15,000. <laughs> we won't call them rigs. We'll call them radios. Um, <clears throat> I must say it looked pretty good. It looked the same to me. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty biased on this, but, but I really did try to see if, if it would come, would create a pattern on the waterfall that was noticeably different from the you know the, the the more you know advanced modern commercial radios, and I just didn't see it. I mean, it looked like the I knew, the bandwidth was exactly what you'd expect. the The opposite sideband rejection was very good. the The carrier suppression was good too. So I, I, I it would be an interesting. 
experiment if we take these rigs and, you know, have people look at them and see if they could, you know, it's hard to say because if you tell them beforehand that it's home brew, they'll, they're always going to tell you that there's something not quite right. But I, I objectively, I think in, a, in kind of a kind of a double blind test, I don't think you'd be able to tell the difference. All right, let's see. But this brings us to a point where you and I disagree, Pete. Well, yeah, just, just a different view. SDR radio, a different view, just a different view. Different view. Different because I have in here, and this is a topic. This was originally, I think, raised by our friend um, Ron Sparks, AG5RS. He wrote in. And I, and I put an article up on the blog, and I called it Sparks from Sparks. He was uh, kind of reacting, I think, to my uh, Luddite-like comments and about, about the role of SDR radio in, in, in modern ham radio. And I was saying that I have, look, I have in my hand, I'm holding it up right now. There you go. My entire radio, uh, the SDR receiver. And it's a tiny little thing. It's on the palm of my hand. It's got a... Um, uh, direct digital conversion. We don't even have I or Q anymore, Pete. We can't even make I and Q. DDC. They don't want to do I and Q. DDC. Direct digital conversion. It's got an, basically an, uh, a digital to anal- analog to digital converter there that works at RF. It turns it into a stream of ones and zeros that goes into this USB plug. Pete, the computer has eaten my rig. <laughs> it has. <laughs> It has. It's almost all in the computer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, I I, um, I have my misgivings about this whole thing. I don't know. It, it just seems to me that it. Now you know it's 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 a different technology and everything, but it seems to me pretty far afield from the kind of home brewing that that we're that we've been talking about that we're used to, where the builder has a much greater participation in the production of either the RF signal or the reception of the RF signal, where you're in there and you're, you know, we talked about this, for example, when we when we encouraged people to make their own diode ring mixers, just to have the experience of doing it, as opposed to just plunking in uh, an SPL1 or an NE602 mixer. You know, if you, if you actually do it, you, you, you wind those toroids, you make the diode ring, and you think, wow, I made that device, and now I can try to understand how it operates. But when you use one of these things, and I'm holding up my little SDR uh, a dongle, man, it's all mysterious black boxes. I don't know how any of that stuff works. I don't even think the guys who really make the chip really know how it works at a component level, the way we would know how, for example, the transistors, resistors, and capacitors in a TA amplifier work. But go ahead, defend the modern position. What do you think? Well, well you know, just a different view, and I think uh, <clears throat> it's a fundamental difference of com- Component level versus board level. You know, component level, you, you build, uh, and take your example of the uh, SBL1. You know, you, you start off with two uh, ferrite cores, a bunch of wire, and four dot, four match diodes, and you wire those up, and you got a double balance mixer. And you buy an SBL1, and it's got eight pins, and <laughs> you plug it in the circuit and solder and move on. But I, I think something is to be said is coming out of the antenna is RF. And and there's, you know, I always say there's there's more than one road to San Diego, you know, and and there's more than one automobile. You could get there in a Beetle or a Cadillac, but but you ultimately end up in in San Diego, and it just it just depends on personal preferences. Now I, I think one one thing is to be said for the 
maybe on kind of the SDR, but uh, in the black box, uh, board level stuff versus component level stuff. I was just thinking this morning about you take a an 809850, which is a DDS board from China. By the way, the DDS boards now cost more than the SI5351 board. <laughs> Have you priced them lately? They, they, you could I buy those for five you, or six bucks. They're not 12 no, that's just bucks. No, you're engaged in some sort of market manipulation. <laughs> yeah, 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 you <laughs> anyway, you take an AD9850 and an Arduino, and you can arrange those, configure those two boards in one fashion, and you have a, a great uh, digital uh, local oscillator or VFO. You take those and arrange them in another configuration, and now you have a scalar network analyzer. With, with just a few different, few, few, you know, Dwayne's. SNA Junior. It's basically a, an Arduino and an AD9850 and a few components. You take the AD9850 and you take the Arduino, and now you got a local oscillator. You got one of those uh, with the yep. purchase code. Right so, so I mean, the if you had to do that with discrete components, significantly more in terms of hardware versus just taking two boxes and you you write some software or get some CAN software, and you either got to VFO or scalar network analyzer. That, I, I think that's the only thing that I see. Now, do you understand what's going on in the box? Probably not. But right. but you know, black boxes go way back to the first days where they were talking about transfer functions. Say, doesn't matter what's in the box. When you do this, this is what comes out in the output. So, you, you know, but there's a. I, I, and you know, with all due respect, though, I think there's a certain satisfaction in taking discrete components, understanding what every one of those components does, arranging them in a way, tuning them, and then having some output. And there's a real satisfaction with, with being able to do that. And and i got to be honest with you, a lot of digital guys that work with the boxes and the board level can't do that. <laughs> they, yeah. they've, never, they've never grown up with that. But on the other hand, uh, you know, just we're enjoying the benefits of some of these these boards and an SDR radio is a couple of chips and a local oscillator and an audio amplifier and you're there. You know, so it's it's not necessarily that one's better than the other. It's just that uh, the board level gives you some flexibility about different things that you can do, and it, it now gets into the realm of the software versus the hardware. So, yeah, I, you know, I, I know what you're saying, and I but and I, I think this gets back to the message that we got from Ron Sparks, and I put his his email up on the blog if anybody wants to take a look at it. And I would disagree with Ron here too, um, because he was he kind of said, well, you know, we've gone we've made progress in radio, and if you look at, for example, the transition from um, from old Spark, you know, Spark transmitters to to CW to phone, and this movement into software-defined radio is just part of that progress. But I, I think it is a big, I see it as, I see it differently. I think that when guys went from, you know, spark transmitters to CW transmitters with tubes, they could still understand and look at each of the components in their rigs and understand what was going on there, <coughs> even if they probably didn't at the time understand the physics of the detector, the Galena detector, or anything like that. But it was all kind of identifiable, and you could say, okay, the signal goes in here, and it's this is what happens to it, and it goes out. Whereas with the, when you move into the SDR area, um, if I'm looking at this, this little digital receiver that I have in my hand, I mean, even if I've worked on it a bit, I can't say that I built this thing, right? Um, you know, the, the chip maker built it, 
you know, Intel built it. Whoever made the chip, they were the ones who made it. I just plug it in, right? And, okay, you could, you could say that you, if you work on the code, then you're involved in it. But that's a different thing. I mean, there, there you're, you're involved in writing lines of code. You're not, you know, building a physical uh, rig. So I would disagree with Ron there. It, it's different, but I wouldn't say it's part of the same the same process. I think there's a real break when you, um, you know, for example, even if you bought the components for this thing, if you went out and you bought the chip and you decided for some crazy reason that you wanted to solder the chip onto the board, you still wouldn't really be making it because all of the, the electronics is still inside the box. So for me, it's sort of like it's another little mysterious black box. I mean, we always talk badly about the appliance operators who plunk down ten grand to get a Yesu or a Kenwood or an ICOM, and for them, it's just a black box with kind of with not even knobs anymore. Yeah. No, no, no <laughs> knobs. The mouse. Knobs. Computer. Menus. Yeah, menus. The mouse. Yeah, yeah. But, but this is the same sort of thing on a smaller scale. So anyway, I, I use it partly because you pushed me into using it. I blame you, Pete Giuliano. Uh, and there is there is a time for it. But when I look at the Bidexes here, I kind of like the ones that are all analog, kind of chip-free, more, <laughs> and, I, and I know it's a, it's a, it's a prejudice. It's, a, it's, it's based on, you know, experience and, you know, listening to Gene Shepard when I was a kid and all that, but I kind of like the analog stuff better. But it's to each his own. It's a hobby. You could mix things up. Yeah. Mix and match. Sure. All right. I, just, I, thought, I think we needed to get that, uh, that, that disagreement. Well, it's just a slightly different view. Not disagreement, slightly different view. It's, it's uh. one's view, you know. And and uh, I think that's what's nice about this hobby. It, it has something for everyone. I mean, if you want to build all analog radios, you can. And remember, it's the watts going into the antenna. You know, uh, aside from the fact being able to say as well, you know, I, I see your skirts out there. Forget that. Can I make contacts? Can I communicate with people? Can you know? Can I work DX? That's that's what it's really all about. Speaking of skirts, here's a question I want to throw out to some of the <coughs> the gurus, especially the SDR digit gurus out there. <laughs> Something I heard when we were listening to the to the to the to the QSO Today interview with Gerald Youngblood um, of uh, SDR Flex Radio fame, right? He said something. He said that, you know, with once you get into the realm of SDR, you can come up with filters that have brick walls on either side. In other words, he implied, and maybe he wasn't, he didn't mean to imply it, but what I understood was basically no skirts, that if you look at the passband on these filters, they'll be vertical, and that do not ring, all right? Now, I, I'm not, is that... I'm not sure whether that's completely right. Is it possible using SDR technology to come up with passbands for filters that are, when you graph them, completely vertical? In other words, that don't have skirts. I don't know. I've heard different stories. So I hope maybe somebody could write in, is it possible? Or is it, is it just that they, they are more vertical and, and more skirt-free than our beloved crystal or LC filters, but I, th I did find that impressive. I mean, I'm, and, you know, when, when you look at the, the passband, for example, if I look at the passband on this little SDR radio and I put it up there, 
you could see the passband in the audio. It's not skirt free. There are little skirts there. It is a little bit wider when you get 60 dB down. So I'm just wondering if it's a matter of degree. But maybe some of the uh, the gurus out there can tell us whether it is possible to come up with, in fact, kind of passbands that are vertical on on both sides without ringing in the digital realm. Or do you guys have skirts too? Well, you know what they'll they'll argue is that they can do a math manipulation that they can take a uh, a wider signal, and what they do is they narrow in the bandpass. So by narrowing in the bandpass, they're taking a slice, and, and the slice becomes smaller so that it looks vertical, mm-hmm. but but it may not be totally vertical. But I mean, you, you have the possibility to keep reducing that bandwidth, you, you know, yeah. tu- fine tuning it. I mean, with your crystal filter. You essentially have one bandwidth. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. unless you have like a Jones filter that uh, Tentech patented, where, where they're able to change the capacitance, that to, to change it at will, and then there's some problems too that you shift the center frequency. But there, 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 there are uh, offset circuits that doesn't shift the center frequency as you near the bandwidth of the crystal filter. But I mean, without some special filter in there, it's a specific bandwidth. With the digital, you can keep squeezing that thing in. Until you get to the point. Now, i got to tell you, some of these guys play with that. I heard a guy with a flex radio the other day. He, he had a 1.6 bandwidth, 1.6 kilohertz bandwidth, and saying, isn't this great? It sounded awful. <laughs> I mean, you've got to lose something. Human voice. It, to me, it, it just, I, I'm saying, man, it's like this guy's in the, this is a fat guy in the telephone booth. <laughs> <You know? laughs> is what it, what, what it was. So uh, yeah, you can do it, but it may, but the resulting product may not be exactly what you want. All right, all right, good, interesting stuff. Hey, uh, a couple of things we had on our list to mention here. We, we mentioned this a little bit earlier, um, but some great progress on uh, homebrew rigs by some of the guys that we've been talking to and corresponding with. Brian KV4ZS got his new. Uh, DC receiver working on 40. It's an LBS. And it's an LBS. It's an LBS. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's your design. And it's great. And and Brian was having trouble with it and struggling with it. And then he he made this video of the receiver in action. And it's a direct conversion receiver. It's got the beautiful little display, the color display that you guys have been working with. And he wasn't using the RF amplifier. He was going right into the balanced mixer, which you can do on 40, and uh, and right into the audio amplifier. And he was tuning it around, and as I'm watching the YouTube video, I'm thinking, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to sound. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was hearing, he said he heard static, and he was worried that he heard static. Come on, it's 40 meters, that's what you hear. Yeah. And then he heard, like, whistles up at the high end of the band, but that's those are the carriers from 40-meter broadcast. I think Brian actually had the thing working very, very well, but maybe because of a lack of kind of experience of listening to a direct conversion receiver on 40 meters... He was mistaking the normal sound of the band for some sort of defect in the uh, in the in the in the receiver. But congratulations, Brian. That was really cool. Yeah. And thanks for posting the video. You got any comments on Brian's uh, on on that no, project? I haven't heard anything more from him. I, I did email him back and essentially said the same thing you did. <laughs> it's working right. <laughs> you know yeah. that that's why you you get your feet wet with this and say, you know, I'd like sig- single signal reception and why you move up to the next part two <laughs> where you build <laughs> you yeah. build a superheterodyne with a crystal filter. Well, the next thing, we, that's, that's where we're going to next because we've got to talk, talk to a guy who just jumped right in. Now, this, is, this was a bold move. Yeah. A Dean, AC9JQ, 
went out and as his first rig of any kind, built a, a TIA, a Bidex TIA a transceiver. Was he on 20 or 40? 40. I'm not sure. 40. On 40. And uh, he built it in this really cool aluminum box made out of uh, uh, aluminum components from Home Depot, I think. And he used the TIA circuits that we've been talking about. He used an SI-5351. He used a little color display that Pete uh, introduced to the world. And, man, Dean made his first QSO. We call it the double first. His first ever ham radio QSO was made with his homebrew transceiver. I mean that I, that didn't even happen that didn't even happen back in the in the days of the 20s and 30s because most of the time guys were using a commercial receiver. Yeah. Dean, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah. It maybe that may be the first that that's happened in ham radio in the United States in in many many years. I mean somebody should look into that but advancing, the double first. advancing the state of the art. Advancing the radio <laughs> yeah. art, right? Right there. And he, he's the guy we were talking. He needs some. He needs a better antenna. If he gets a, a dipole up, man, he's going to be he's going to be doing some some serious contacting on on forty meters with that rig. But it's a beautiful thing. I put a blog. I put a, a YouTube video that Dean made up onto the blog. But congratulations on that, Dean. A double first. Excellent. Well, there's another one under construction in Croatia. Michele. Oh, Michele. Yes. Michele. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Michele sent us a video too, and I joked that. He seems to be building all the rigs that you have built, Pete. <laughs> yeah. So this is going to, some, someday, a thousand years from now, people are going to discover this, and they're going to say, who was this N6QW guy? He seemed to have led some sort of electronic cult yeah, all yeah, over the world yeah. discovering rigs with his call sign on it. Well, well, you know, it's kind of an interesting story about Michele. I first ran into him uh, about uh, three, four years ago when he saw the J-bomb article. And uh, he said in Croatia he, he couldn't get the crystals for, for the filter. It was kind of hard to come by. And I said, well, you don't, don't worry about that. I said, I, I pulled the crystals out of the J-bomb because I put a 9 megahertz filter in there, commercial filter, instead of the uh, 4.9152. I said, I'll send them to you. So I had to come up with a real clever package <laughs> to send to Croatia, figuring that these things never get through customs. But he did get them. So I, I guess he feels indebted now <laughs> that he has to build all. He's got to build everything. Yeah, got to build everything. I, I mean, he's, soon, he's, soon we're going to see a Croatian KWM four. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't doubt it. He does great work too. Oh, yeah. It's very and the enthusiasm is really evident. Well, so know, congratulations, Michele. He told me that he works for the police department, but what he does is all, all the radios. You know, repairing the radios and that. So I mean, this guy. He's got a day job doing this, <laughs> and and I noticed his shack has got a spectrum analyzer. I said, "Where'd you get the spectrum analyzer?" He said, "Real easy." He said, "They upgraded the police department, and they let me let me have the spectrum analyzer." So, I mean, he's, he's got good gear in his in his shack. You know, he can test stuff. Excellent, good 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 projects all over the world. And speaking of which, I counted the other day how many mighty mites we have reported on on the blog. I think we sent out. 40 or 50 crystals. Close to 50, yeah. Yeah, and we already have back uh, reports, um, video or just photos, on 32 my, Mighty My projects all around the world. The latest came in from Saskatchewan, a Saskatchewan Mighty My. Yeah. One guy, I got up there, he couldn't, he, this was fantastic. This actually made it onto Hackaday. He, um, he, he didn't have the, um, 
the variable capacitor. Oh man, yes. this is this is like oh yes. this is this is like studly home brewing. Yes. Holy cow! He goes out and he makes figures out how to make the variable capacitor of the necessary capacitance from two beer cans. Yeah. My man. Right? My man. I mean, you take one and you slide it over the other. You put a dielectric between the two. And depending on how much of one beer can you put over the other one, you're varying the capacitance. Fine business, old man. Yeah, and it, oh, it, man. And it got it to work? His dielectric was electrical tape. He just, he tape, just wrapped yeah. the, the, the inner, inner, inner cylinder with the, well, cylindrical capacitors. Why not? There you go. Why not? Oh, man, beautiful. I mean, we've seen Sprat articles where people take two kind of sheets of um, like PC board material or like credit card size, and depending on how much overlap you have, you can vary the capacitance. But the two beer cans was a, a, a really cool, what the Hackaday boys would call hack, yeah. and they put it up on the Hackaday blog. And we've got a, we've got a video of the whole oh, thing yeah. picked up on the blog, so check it out. But find business on that. Wow, part of the thirty-two, the the color burst liberation army. Yeah. Well, the, the, when I saw that, it reminded me of an article that appeared in either 73 or CQ back in the 70s. It was called the Beer Can Vertical, where the guy yeah. had to drink <laughs> several <laughs> cases of beer, and, you know, and he connected all the beer cans together, and that was his that was his central support of a of a dipole beer can. Yeah, that was that that was 73 magazine. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> we miss it. Hey. um... Anyway, 32 Mighty Mites out there. Pete, movie review time. You saw the movie, The Martian. Oh. Well, let me best describe this. I took my XYL, figuring I was going to hear moaning and groaning and complaining. Why'd you take me? She thoroughly enjoyed the movie. <laughs> I mean, wow. that, that ought to tell you so. Where you can take your XYL, who absolutely hates ham radio or anything engineering wise, and she enjoys the movie. I mean, it is so captivating. And, and you know, I'm, I was reflecting back here on our earlier comments about SDR, and I was thinking about the the component level guys are like MacGyver. You know, you take all these components and put it together. MacGyver might have a little problem <laughs> with compo- board level stuff, you know, because he couldn't use his pocket knife to build these things. But essentially, this is a futuristic MacGyver, uh, as the best way I can describe it. Mark Wat was it? Mark Mark Watney. Mark, Mark Watney was his name has the, the knack. Yeah, he has the knack. Yeah. I haven't seen the movie yet. I read the book. We're going to go to see the movie here in the next couple of weeks. Um, and based on your recommendation, Maria and my wife will come with us, too. So it's not going to be just me and Billy. Um, but, yeah, I mean, as I read the book, there was the part where he, and I don't want to kind of spoil it for anybody, but, you know, where he had to establish radio contact with Earth. And he struggled and he got... We won't tell him how they did it, but he got the components together, and he sent off the signal. And I really, as I read the book, it gave me a chill. It was that feeling of like when you've built something and you're using it to work really important DX. And it, it made me think, you know, I have I have here on the wall in my shack a map of Mars. I think it's from yeah, it's from National Geographic. It's a, it's an actual map of Mars, and it, it showed up in a picture that appeared on the blog not long ago, and somebody wrote to me and said, hey, do you actually have a map of Mars on the wall of your shack? And I respond, responded kind of tongue-in-cheek, mostly joking, but I said to him, yeah, because we have hopes 
of winning the Elser Mathis Cup. There you go. <laughs> and I need to know where to point the beam. Yep. 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 <laughs> anyway, uh, it, it, I, I think the book is great. We're really looking forward to the movie. But, you know, Watney, and I'll say this. You'll see, I don't know if it shows up in the movie. It shows up in the book. After fixing the radio gear and establishing contact with the Earth, he makes a mistake on the workbench and knocks out the transmitter. That's not in the movie. Well, in the book it is. And first of all, when I read that thing, I, I, was, I said, those stupid NASA engineers, <laughs> yeah. they didn't put reverse polarity protection on that thing. A simple diode <coughs> and a fuse could have saved the day. So that's the first thing I thought. The second thing I thought, I said, Watney, what kind of lame appliance operator are you, old man? <laughs> you didn't even try to fix yeah. it. He fries the thing, right? He fries it. And then he looks at it and says, oh, it's broken, yeah, right? Yeah. I can't talk to Earth anymore. And he moves on. I mean, come on. Get out the screwdriver. Yeah. He could have fixed it. It probably was some simple, stupid you know, thing blown in the... These are the kind of things you think about yeah, when you have... Yeah, you know, You know the one question I got from, from my XYL? I want to know what ASCII was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because he used that in the movie, but I won't say any more. All right. Yeah, that's right. You guys got to see the movie, read the book, do both. <clears throat> I mean, true, true knack uh, people will, will try to do both. Uh, you should. You got to go read the book. Get the book. All right. Let's see. Enough of Mar on Mars. Now, just mention a couple of notable QSOs that I had. And Pete, let me know if you want to mention anything here. But I contacted on 17 meters, Charlie Oscar II, Victor Delta Delta, Vlad, down there in Havana. And we got into a really cool contact, real conversation about home brewing. And he knows Arnie Coro. Oh, wow. Other friend. Yeah. Arnie's a, the legends and who works at Radio Havana, Cuba. <coughs> it's good to talk to them. And I already mentioned my contact with, uh, with Jeff over there in Wales, HB to HB. Uh, any, anybody you want to mention here, Pete? Anybody you've been, no, just, just fun just, with this. with being. Lots of, con lots more contacts. It's the antenna. By the way, Bill, we're going to have to do a podcast on antennas someday. We, we got to, we, we got to do that. Got, we got to get away from the bench and get out in the backyard. Yeah. In February. Right. In we'll, February. It's, <laughs> February. Go. In February. Oh, it's February here. February there. All right. <laughs> Thanks a lot. All right, that brings us to, yeah, Solder Smoke Mailbag. I uh, want to mention Peter Parker, VK3YE, the Wizard of Melbourne Beach, Australia, has come out with a book, QRP book. Excellent. It's available on Amazon Kindle. And you know, I, I, it is now number one in the radio electronics category on Amazon Kindle. Number one. All right, that thing is flying off the digital bookshelves. Check it out. I've got a link to it up on the blog. Really glad that Peter did this. He's been a real uh, excellent uh, guru for double sideband and portable and beach operations. He's got on the cover of book the picture of the pier, the dock, on which he tests all of his his, his ingenious rigs. So glad to hear, Peter, you got the book out. Congratulations on that. Good luck with it. I mentioned the, the email we got from Ron Sparks. Sparks from Ron Sparks, uh, AG5RS. Uh, Ron is in, in, involved in all kinds of amazing stuff out there in Texas, balloon launches and everything else. Uh, great guy. Um, and I want to mention, we've heard recently from two really old friends of the podcast. Not, not that they're really old, but they've been friends of the podcast for a long ten time. Ten years, ten years. <laughs> Armand, 
uh, WA1UQO, uh, who I always meet up with in the Northern Virginia Hamfest. Good to hear from you, Armand. Armand has been involved in the One Water Project. This is a, that One Water Transceiver uh, proposed, and, and I think uh, kind of, I know that um, Chuck Adams talked about it. W8DIZ is also involved, and, and, and uh, Armand has been having a lot of fun with that. Terrific. We also heard from our old friend Roger. Roger, is, his new call sign, KG6ETL, he's out there in California, but I always think of him as Papa Alpha One Zulu Zulu. He was the one, Pete, who sent me the pyro machine, the, the video that Ooh, you saw. yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, this, this is part of that, the kind of, you got a Euro-California thing going on there, a lot of avant-garde with Roger. Nice tube. Yeah, <laughs> really. This is a... Well, we won't get into it. I'll, I'll try to put a link up onto the blog. We don't want to encourage this kind of uh, dangerous <laughs> stuff. And then also... That'll smoke uh, your rig. It'll <laughs> smoke your whole neighborhood. Um, hey, listen, that KI6BGE, Tim Sutton, yes. sent us a bunch of big boxes. boxes. Big boxes. Bigger than the boxes I use. You could put two of my TIA, of, of my BIDX boxes, in one of Tim's Aluminum boxes. He sent us. He sent a whole bunch of them. Your son was kind enough to pick them up in L.A. Sent them to you. You were kind enough to send send a bunch of them back to me. These boxes are so big, Pete. I was thinking about this. This is another case. This is a message from the radio gods. These boxes are so big. You know what the message here is? Don't mess with those tiny, teeny electronic no. chips. <laughs> Build big stuff. Build, think about yeah, it. Yeah. You know, you could you could you could put you know a several dozen Arduinos and hundreds yeah. of SI. No, build big. Build big. Big. These are DX100 big. These are rack mounted big. The, the radio gods have spoken. Um, let's see who else. Oh, I put up a, a link to uh, the uh, the receiver made a while back by Tom Hall, AK2B. He uh, he built this great receiver using the SI5351. And I don't want to stir up an old controversy, but I think it's a great video because in it, he tunes across some very strong signals, I think on 20 meters. He tunes through a number of different bands. And what's interesting is as you watch him tune through using the SI5351, I really could see and hear none of the telltale signs of the, the supposedly very problematic phase noise. The receiver sounds superb. And it's got an SI5351 in there. And, I mean, you couldn't tell the difference from a crystal oscillator. And so just take a listen. If you have your doubts about the SI5351, go to the blog. Take a look at the video we put up from Tom Hall, AK2B, The Wizard of Manhattan Island. And I, I put it in there I, in the article. I said I, I give, Tom gets extra credit because everything you do in Manhattan is doubly difficult. Hey, got to mention Sprat, Pete. Yes. This wasn't on our list, but a couple things. I'm holding it in my hand. The latest issue of Sprat, issue number 164, and a superb edition it is. It's got a picture of a U-Kits, two-band CW transmitter kit on the cover with tubes, tubes, thermotrons. But then what most got me was I always read George Dobbs' intro kind of uh, editorial message from the editor. And this month, George notes, and I'll read it. Paul Darling, M0XPD, has recently submitted articles to Sprat introducing microcontroller-based QRP systems. There you go. As Paul suggests, quote, a technology that can offer economy of means 
allied with richness of results. Yes. Quote. For this fine introduction to digital techniques, she receives the Gordon Bennett Trophy for Spratt contributions. Well, Congratulations, well, Paul. Well deserved. Well deserved. And then to show his influence and how, how, how powerful his articles have been, our friend George Dobbs, G3RJV, goes on to write, even I have been encouraged to look over the parapet. Missionary <laughs> stuff. If George is going in that direction, maybe I'm going to have to reconsider my opposition to this technology. <laughs> Pete, one other thing from Spratt. You know, I, I make it a practice. Every time I leave the house on the way to work, I grab uh, one of the Spratts at random from the pile. And the other day I pulled out issue number 141 from winter 2009-2010. I made my way through its pages, uh, all kinds of great articles, and I ended up, as I always do, at Members News by Chris Page, N4CJG4BUE. And there I noticed, on the same page, right there, <laughs> the top of the page, the photo on the right is N6QW's Tri-Band QRP SSB transceiver. Pete writes, this project started... With a whim purchase of inexpensive crystal filter used in the Heathkit HWSB series. So there you are on the top of the page with your beautiful re reproduction of the HW101. Yep. Okay, then I go further down the page, and there I see another very familiar call sign, G3ROO. Ian, G3ROO has started a new inter inter internet group for those interested in spy and man portable sets. I operated G3ROO's Paraset when I was visiting his house out there. In, wow, in, in, yeah. Was, he, he used to be the further. Kanga guy, right? He started, Kanga, yeah. that's right. Kangaroo, yeah. get it? Kangaroo, yeah. there you go. Um, further down the page, I see another familiar call sign. AA1TJ. Oh, Mike. It, right. Mike Rainey, AA1TJ and G3JMB have been exchanging information about Victor's 1954 transistor QSO with G3IEE that I mentioned in Member News of Sprat 140. They were using um, 29110 point contact transistors. This is easy, even earlier than that CK thing that you were using. All right, 1954. When did you get into the transistor game? Uh, 53, 54, yeah. Wow, yeah. Same, time same time. But then further down the page, I see there's a note <laughs> this guy with a call sign I0 stroke N2CQR. <laughs> All of us managed to make it yeah, onto this yeah. one page of Sprat 141. I'm in good company. I was I was proud. I was reporting that most of my operating has been from a country house in an olive grove north of Rome in the Sabine Hills using a heat kit HWA. Great stuff. Another reminder of the awesome power of our beloved Sprat and the GQRP club. Before you leave the current issue of Sprat, two things mm -hmm. I want to mention. One, there's a really interesting receiver in there that the guy used a Darlington transistor for... I saw that. And, yeah, and then he, he connected... Um, he, he's got kind of like a, a VFO, so it's a direct convergence receiver, which is kind of nice. And if you look in the members' news, you'll see an uh, item from Colin uh, on his BIDX. Did you see that? Chris Page? I didn't see it. Chris Page? It's... Ah, yeah, that's the one I was just, the the section I was just talking about. I didn't see the column header piece in there. Yeah, it's it's on the right hand side. Ah, yeah, I see it there. Yeah, and he mentions right. he mentions the help he got from N two CQR and N six QW. I hope we helped M zero XPD. Yeah, yeah. 
And uh, and Farhan. Yeah. All right. Excellent stuff, Pete. Yeah, good. All right. Terrific. I see they got a picture of an HWA in there, too. All right. Thank you, Spratt. Pete, we're, we're going into double overtime. Yeah, yeah. We even started early today. I know. Well, you know, I, I was listening. You know, Yogi Berra recently passed away. Yeah. And some of his quotes, I mean, he said, you know, it gets earlier later here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It gets later earlier yeah, here. Yeah, you got it. If you come to a fork in the road, take it. Yeah. <laughs> Which one? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> and then he says, if you don't know where you're going, you got to be very careful because you might not get there. Yeah. <laughs> so it seems somehow appropriate for this issue to co- conclude with some quotes from Yogi Berra, but there we yeah. are. It ain't over till it's over. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's over now, Okay. Please. Hey, seven threes from Northern Virginia. Thanks very much. You bet. I, I leave you with my drum machine. <laughs> oh, man. And that video, we're going to have to... We're going to have to. We're gonna have to put a link out. There you go. Check out the video. Yes. Right. Seven threes from the left coast. <laughs> seven threes from the wilds of Northern Virginia. Ooh, that's awesome. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!